Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. This is Messiah Matters number 371. I've seen the light. Apparently too much light. My name is Caleb Hegg. And I am a snow shoveling fool. I think <laughs> I just shoveled about another four inches this morning off the driveway and back patio and a place around for the dog to get. We got more to come. I'm Rob Vanoff. You know, I just realized that I forgot to extend our intro music and I apologize for that. So it drops out right after I say my name and then then it just it sounds like like my name is Caleb Hegg, you know, and then all of a sudden and I'm Rob Vanoff. Sorry about that, buddy. Mine did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's like right. if I'm listening, it's like it goes while I'm talking. I, there must be some sort of gate that's like opening and closing oh, or something. I apologize. What's up, man? How's it going? How's life? I just, well, I don't know if you meant this, mm -hmm. but I noticed the name of episode 371 and it reminded me of a song from the 80s. Let's talk about love. I think it's, I think I that's love what that it song. is. Dude, I love, no. I love the, I love the 80s like rock ballad. Like, let's talk about the score. Oh, no, it's and... what about love? Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. That's the good stuff, man. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of music that I'm all about. <laughs> okay. Hey, welcome everybody in the uh, in the chat room. Welcome, Robin. New member, new member to the 36 in the chat room. We are excited that you're there. Yeah, it doesn't matter how many people there are. There's always 36. No, but Brandon tried to, he was like, you're now part of the 38. No, see, I see what you're trying to do there, Brandon. You're trying to up it by two. That doesn't work. No. no, you know what? How the monks like they argued about like how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. Yes, exactly. It's like it, it's it's like a uh, what do they call it? It's a miracle of physics. Like you could have a, a stadium full of people and there's just thirty six people there. How old is Rob? Somebody asked. Who would you even want to answer that? I don't mind. Wait, 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 before you, before you say anything, I have a, let me, let me see if we can get, let me see if we can get people in, in the chat room to accurately guess. And the reason why is because I have a picture of Rob with a guitar and a killer mullet, dude. Just, I mean, like, like blowing in the wind. Can you share it on the screen? Blowing in the wind kind of, no, I don't think I have it like that, but like blowing in the wind as he's got sunglasses on, he's like singing into the mic, like, okay, with that information let's uh let's let's and, and, and here's here's and, another and hint. sean says the answer is 36 here's here's <laughs> good no, answer yes good answer my, my wife says that if i shave my beard i look like i'm 12 so there's a hint brandon says 44 uh paul says 51 mm. close 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 actually close. Are we? Should I give the answer? Somebody else says forty nine. Oh, <laughs> you are kind. Go ahead. Actually, I, I'm fifty. Yeah. So, was it Paul said fifty one? Yeah. Yeah, I turned fifty one this year. There you go. You're an so, old man. You're an elder. Yeah. All right. This is my jubilee year. Enough playing around. Let's get to it. Uh, nobody wants to hear about us yip yapping about nonsense. So yes, I was here. a teenager in the eighties. Yeah, I was not. I'm younger than that. I was born in 81. But but you loved the Oh, dude, I still love it. I don't No, no, no. Not loved. Still love. I mean, I like Oh, I'm trying to think. So in the 90s, you didn't like the 90s music. You had to go back to the 80s music. Like dude, dude, the Karate Kid Part 2, I am the man who will fight for your honor. 
the power of love. Oh, dude, heck yeah, dude! I got I got like the I got the the uh, soundtrack from from the Karate Kid Part One and Two like always playing, and my wife hates it. I'll play it in like Walmart if we ever go to Walmart. I am the man. Yeah, exactly. That's oh, like dude, totally yes. grocery store. Like, oh, dude, it's the way to music. Go. Yes, yes, the power <laughs> of love, baby. And in the power of love, but, oh, dude, Huey Lewis in the news. That's my jam. That is my jam. And actually, I think that that's why I like Corey Wong so much. Corey Wong is my favorite musical artist right now. But I think because he kind of incorporates some of that '80s, like Huey Lewis in the news, like vibe to his music, even though there's no real words. Like it's all, but oh man, it's so good. Anyway, okay. Now that I've gone off about that, let's uh, let's move on to important things. We've got some interesting emails here, and uh, and this is uh, this is this is going to be a fun week. I don't even think we meant for it to be a fun week, but it's going to be a fun week. Okay, here we go. Kyle writes, "Could you explain pronomian theology to me again?" Okay, this uh, I'm going to take this one, and then the next email is really where where Rob's going to jump in. Pronomian theology was actually. Uh, first coined by a uh, scholar, we found I found this out just this past week. Coined by a scholar named Bonds, um, and or Bon, and, who is very, uh, very, very popular within theonomy. He was a Presbyterian scholar, I believe, um, and uh, he uses it in a book. I forget what book, but Lee Kessler was reading it and sent me a, a, a screenshot of it. So he's probably in the chat room and will probably tell us anyway. Um, so, but then. Uh, Jeff Young, my good friend, uh, used the term pronomian, and really, that's where it really took off recent in recent time. And uh, basically, I would say that pronomian is a is not a movement. It is not necessarily a theological like movement or whatnot. It's actually just a and the way that Jeff Young has described this, it is a tab in the Rolodex of theology. And what that means is is that if you believe that the Torah, that the law is still an act today, and that includes like festivals and the Seventh-day Sabbath and the kosher laws, then you are pronomian, which just simply means pro-law. And so anybody could be pronomian. You could have a Baptist, you could have a Hebrew rooter, you could have a Messianic Jew, you could have, um, you know, a Methodist. It doesn't matter if they are pro. And even you could even have you could we could say that non-believing Jews are pronomian. So that's what it means to have like that that tab in the Rolodex of theology. It's not a movement. And people have tried to make it a, a movement. So for instance, J.K. McGee just put out a video, I don't know, a month ago or something like that on the pronomian movement. Totally overshot it. He didn't, I mean, I think that he has uh, not understood what pronomian, I mean, he, he, he's, he obviously, he's been to school. He obviously knows what the term pronomian would mean, but he has tried to, center it as like, oh, this is a movement that's that's rising. It's not a movement. It's a it's a theological tab in the Rolodex of theology. And so uh, anyone who's trying to make it into a movement is trying to sell something. And that's not what it is. You can be just about anything and be pronomian. So that's what pronomian is. So when I say I'm pronomian, that just simply should orient people's minds to the fact of I'm pro-law. Now we could get into discussions of who is more pronomian than others. So Bonson, is that what, it, what his name is? Bonson. I think it's, I said Bonds, but it's Bonson. 
Um, Bonson is the uh, he's he was a theonomist, and uh, but he believed that the Torah, uh, certain aspects of the Torah, had gone away. That's not a full pronomian theology. Full pronomian theology is that the law is still in act today. So uh, that's what pronomian is. Now, with that said, let's go on. Joseph uh, says this. He said, and this is a long email, but I think we're going to get a lot of, I think we're going to get a lot out of this. So we're going to, we're just going to go with it. Joseph says, I understand in ancient times, people adopted the gods of their nation and their fathers. I understand what we call Judaism today as the same. Therefore, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob becomes known as the nation of Israel's God. The Lord, I, I agree with that. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the God of, of Israel, fair enough. The Lord reveals himself this way, and that is how he is known among the peoples of the world, Exodus 3.6, Exodus 3.15. Uh, there's a lot of different, yeah. And the Israelites, both Hebrews and the mixed multitude, were the, to share the light of Torah with all nations. I'm with you so far, Joseph. Let's keep going. The Lord, uh, sorry, I didn't scroll far enough. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. My understanding is to share the oracles of the Lord as priests among the nations. Exodus 19.6. Later, the Israelites' way of service to God would be called Judaism. Judaism, the word itself, connects the, to a people, Yehudim. Judaism may have been a way to express how Yehudim served their God. Paul writes, I was advancing in Judaism. And understands after the son was revealed to him, part of Paul's service to God should be to share the word with the nations. Galatians 1, 14 through 16. If what is known as the gospel from Torah could have been known as part of Judaism, why not identify with Haderich Judaism or the way? And he gives a significant amount of references like Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Acts 19, 1 through 2. So on and so forth. Okay. And he gets into the Torah and everything. So there's a lot of references here. The way. Do you want me to stop yet or do you want me to keep going to his questions? Um, well, one comment here I wrote down. He, it, correct me if I'm wrong. First of all, thanks, Joseph, for the email. Is he saying that the term Judaism comes, he says it comes from Judah or Yehuda, yep. and the people are Yehudim. But it's it's the name of the religion, or what he says it to it's used to express how Yehudim serve their God, right? That's that's what I heard, um, and that sounds to me that's oversimplistic. It doesn't help us deal with boots on the ground first century problems, right. which is they're all arguing about how to serve their God. I mean, that's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not on the same page. That's why the Essenes are out at Qumran. Actually, that's this why, is, this, that's this, why uh, they're telling Yeshua, how come, how come they're telling his disciples, how come your rabbi is eating with sinners and tax collectors? How come they don't wash your hands? Right. This is the, the dispute. It, it's not an, we can't just say Judaism because it's, fragmented and um, this plays, sometimes hostile. Okay, so this actually plays into the conversation that's going in, in, on in the chat room that happen, that that is talking about what we just talked about in terms of pronomian because um, you're talking about how the movement of Judaism in the first century was not a monolithic uh, belief. It was fragmented right. all over the place. And Brandon in the chat room says, 
you, but are the Baptist or Methodist pronomian, going back to our previous conversation, he says, um, if you attach yourself to a denomination, don't you generally adhere to their statement of faith? There is no general statement of faith for the Baptist. You have people who say, I'm a 1689 Baptist. You have people who say that I'm have to qualify it. I'm part of the General Baptist. I'm part of the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm part of that, you know, so there's all these different forms of Baptist. And actually one of the the tenets of the Baptist the Baptist denomination is that there is no hierarchy of of denomination. In other words, each church rules itself. And so the point is is that yes, the Baptists I mean, there's, you're going to have differences among Baptists. I would say that I hold to the 1689 Baptist confession with about 12, 12 tweaks. And actually the confessions themselves are not meant to be monolithic all over the world. In other words, confessions are written specifically for a, usually for a community within a specific location. And it's usually uh, location specific in that they are, they are uh, dealing with specific uh, heresies and other things that are going on around them. And this is the exact same thing that we see in the first century. When, when people talk about Judaism in the first century, it doesn't work. And the reason why is because which Judaism are you talking about? Well, right. And I think what, what happens is people, either consciously or not, kind of just take the rabbinic uh, marching order, which is, oh, we have the true religion. It goes all the way back to Moses. We have, we have the oral Torah which is the true religion, which is true Judaism. And it, it has this unbroken chain all the way back. And so people just see that and go, Oh, this is Judaism. Right. But they don't see, they don't understand that the rabbis emerged out of a destroyed temple, out of a dispersed people, uh, and then had to claw their way up to, you know, until the year about a thousand or 1100 to really start establishing its uh, kind of own monolith. Uh, what do you call it? What do you call it? Monolithic uh, kind of um, and, and look, station. It, it, and that was opposite of the Catholic Roman Catholic monolithic monolithic. This, conti- this continues on today because um, even even Brandon in the chat room, he says, if you went to a Baptist church and started teaching, keeping the feast, would they uh, would they allow that? Well, first of all, it depends on on what church you're talking about. As a whole, probably not. If you're talking, if you just want to use really broad brush strokes, but the fact is, is that reformation comes from those who push against the norm, and the church continues to reform. We need to remember that the Baptists, the Methodists, the Lutherans, all these all these denominations are less than you know 550 years old, and and they they have changed significantly. And the fact of the matter is, is that this is one of the reasons I'm so against the notion of trying to have some other movement word other than the Christian church. No, the Christian church needs to reform. It needs to continue to reform and it is reforming. And, and I said this to, um, I said this to, uh, Andrew Schumacher last week is that instead of trying to talk about the Hebrew roots movement and and be specific in terms of Torah observance, he needs to realize that that the idea of pronomian theology or Torah observance is actually starting to be a a uh, theology within the church. It's not other than the church. It's in the church, and this is. This is one of the reasons that the that the Hebrew roots and Messianic movement are are going to lose more and more steam. Is because you have people who that are they're trying to be other than the church. No, they need the the idea of Torah observance needs to stay within the church and needs to reform the church. That's my personal opinion. Okay, 
Let's keep going with this, uh, with the email from Joseph. He says, if the way, quote unquote, if the way is how first century believers identify themselves as opposed to Christian, that's, this is, I want to stop here. They didn't identify themselves as the way as opposed to Christian. In Acts and in, in, uh, and in, is it first or second Peter? Peter, anyway, identifies the believers as Christians. That's all there is to it. So the notion that all of a sudden the the believer you know it's it's a false uh, belief that the that the uh, believers in the first century identified as the way but they shunned the word Christian and it was their it was the uh, people their their adversaries the people who were against them who called them Christians that's simply not true it's just not true anyway he goes on uh, as outsiders did Christian is a better label for your self identification. I think that Christian, it's a great question. I think that Christian, I'll, I'll answer this part and then I'll throw it over to you. I think that the word Christian is the a universal term that is used to note uh, a belief that Jesus Christ is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so th it's the universal term. Now, we talked about this last week. As soon as we say, I'm a Christian, we have, to, we have to clarify that. That's totally fine. I think that's great. This is how we share the gospel with people. But the very first thing we want to do is orient people's minds to the fact that I believe that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. That's the first thing I want to do out of the gate. And therefore, to do that, what word does the scriptures use to do that? Christian. Rob? Yeah, and, and back to the, in the Bible, we both have uh, eudaismos, how you do, doismos, which is only in, I think it's only in Galatians twice in the canon. Um, and we have uh, the word Christian, I think, was it twice or three times, or just twice that you mentioned. Um, the point is that the term Christianos is a, a biblically... Uh, it's a biblical term of identification for believers. Whereas ha Judaismus, the Judaism, as Paul talks about it, is something other. It's, some, it, it's something he was identified with that he's moving away from. That's if we just stick to the canon of scripture, that those are the core facts. So right. whatever the Bible means by Christianoi, the Christians, that is a positive term for believers in Yeshua. Now, does that mean everybody group that calls themselves Christian is going to define it the same way? Not at all, but they should be pressed. I think people should be pressed. Is how important is it for you for the, you know, is it important that this term in the Bible is applicable to you and your faith walk? Right. I believe that a believer in the Bible needs to have Firm that and say yes. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile or whatever. Yes. And then they can be pressed. Why is that important to you? Why is it important? What does it mean to you to be called a Christian? And and you should be able to press, you know, a Baptist or a or any any person that claims that. Press them on it. Find out why that term matters to them. Uh, because that's that's gonna press deeper at you know what it says in scriptures be ready to give an answer for the faith for the hope that is in you and uh so just to recap christian is a positive 
label for of identification for believers in Yeshua in the scriptures. The Judaism, ha Judaismos, is a label of other, of the path that has gone the wrong way. There's there is so much going on in the chat room right now. It's it's pretty intense. Uh, first of all, uh, Mary says, uh, but per the TR Christian class by Ariel Berkowitz states that it was just that in the beginning. The scholars say that it was a derogatory statement. Yeah, there's there is mixed there is mixed uh, belief in this. There's no define like there's nothing that we can point to and say, see, this is a derogatory statement. Uh, it's believed that it could have been a derogatory statement. If that is the case, the Christians picked it up really quick and owned it. It's just, I'll give you an example in modern day. The the Seattle uh, hockey team, they named it the Kraken. Now, instantaneously, people all around the internet decided that they were going to show all the flaws with this. They said, yeah, we're going to make signs that say Kraken under pressure. Uh, and they're, we're going to call the, the people who like the Kraken, the crackheads. And uh, we're going to call their arena the crack house. Now these People are der- jumped on it. These are derogatory terms. Uh, last night, last night, I'm walking in the store. There's a guy with a with a Seattle Kraken jersey on on the back. It said Crackhead. Right. It's, <laughs> it's like K R A. Yeah. It's like I'm like yeah. You can call me whatever you want. I'll own it. So the the Christians are the same way. By the time Peter writes, Christian is they they're all in on that. They're they're going to be good with that. We got another uh, strand of, of a totally different uh, strand of conversation going on, which I do want to comment on. Uh, sh- uh, I'm not going to use a name. Someone in the chat room says, I don't think that uh, Yeshua is interested in me. And there's, uh, there's some things with this statement that I think are interesting. I've felt like this before. So this is, not, this is not to put anybody down. I think a lot of people feel like God is not interested in me or I've, <coughs> I've asked for faith and I haven't gotten it or... There's all sorts of different ways that we can feel about how God is dealing with us. The fact of the matter is, is that that is that this is relying on our feelings. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how you feel. Open up the scriptures and see what what the scriptures say about Yeshua wanting to be with us. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. It, the the notion that we that our our relationship with with Christ is predicated on our feelings is 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 not right. We need to open the scriptures and see what the scriptures say about how Yeshua wants to be in relationship with us. This is where we can find the truth of of how Yeshua is de- wants to deal with us. And so the notion that that uh, you know, and the fact of the matter is, is that when we pray th- for things like faith, or when we pray for things like um, you know patience or whatever, oftentimes we believe that all of a sudden God's going to zap us with these with these uh, attri- these biblical attributes that all of a sudden we're just going to be amazing at. That's not what happens. What happens is God continues to put us into situations where we will uh, have to test these things and have to show resolve for these things. And uh, you know what? Uh, oftentimes. When uh, when we feel far away from God is because God is actually doing exactly what we've asked him to do. He's drawing us near by allowing us to dive into the scriptures to see the promises of God and to draw near to God because the Bible says draw near to God and he will draw near to you. All right. Let's keep going. I think we have a little bit left in this uh, in this uh, email. 
Okay, so uh, why do we use the label self, uh, of Krishna's self-identification? I think we already answered that, especially since Krishna's has, has been associated with creating a new service of God apart from Torah and apart from the covenant with Israel. I agree with that, actually, as a, a once again, using extremely broad brushstrokes. Brush but once again, the, the uh, church continues to reform, and I think that we as believers need to be a part of that reformation. Also, if... Every nation is part of the people of the Lord alongside Israel. The nations are grafted with Israel. Shouldn't our service look like first century believers? Um, uh, well, what do you mean by that? And he goes on and, and says what he means by that. That is reading from a Torah scroll or Torah portion instead of starting with New Testament and working way, our way back to, to Tanakh, etc. In other words, in Christianity, the foundational teachings start with New Testament, whereas Judaism starts with Torah. The writings and see now, I think that we are using too broad of brush strokes at this point. Yeah, you might be able to say that the majority of Christianity is going to focus on the New Testament. That's fine. I think that there's two things going on here. A, I think that the Christian church needs to be more um, engrossed in the Tanakh. There's no doubt about that. I have no problem saying that. At the same time, I also think that within the quote-unquote Torah movement or however you want it, whatever, insert label here, whatever label you, you want to use, I think that there is this notion that the New Testament or the apostolic scriptures is not on par with the Torah, that the Torah, that everything has to line up to the Torah first, which it does, but that somehow uh, the, the New Testament is second class to the Torah. And it's not. That's not the case. It's all scripture. So it, all scripture, if you're reading scripture in, in, I think that we should be reading scripture. I think that uh, preachers should preach uh there, there should be expository preaching, and I think that we should go through books of the Bible. However, there are churches in my, in uh, I know that Seattle is, the Seattle-Tacoma area is apparently, we've got some of the greatest churches in the world here, which is surprising to me, because everybody says that I'm in a unique situation. But uh, there are churches here who, who uh, have gone through that I've seen recently <clears throat> in the past year or two, go back to uh, Exodus, Leviticus, I saw. I saw a church in my city teaching through Leviticus. I saw Ruth. I've seen. So, I mean, there's churches around me in the most. Li I would. I would argue that I'm probably in the top three most liberal cities in the in the nation of America today, and we got churches going through books of of the Bible in the Old Testament. That tells me something, Rob. Well, I was just. I, we talked about this briefly a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you guys can see this. It, uh, Brent Strawn. The Old Testament is dying. I think maybe some of that conversation, um, if people are interested in how do American evangelical Christians in the academic end of, of that world address this problem, which is true, what like the general statement, like, you know what, I go to a church and all I hear is the New Testament. Like, that's a legitimate claim. I think that's going to be sure. true to a lot of people's experience. It, I think it's awesome what you're saying, Caleb, about what's happening with you, but we, we have to allow the fact that there's, it's true. There's still going to be places like that. And that's what Strawn, uh, Brent Strawn, Old Testament is dying. Um, he sees it as a problem and he wrote a book about it saying, look, you know, Christians need to bring the Tanakh back into its rightful place in preaching and in teaching and so that, and in uh, spiritual formation, you know, and discipleship. And I, okay, where, hey, where's hey, that going to lead? Where's that? That's going to lead to people asking these 
tough, tougher questions again. What is the place of the Sabbath? What is the place of the food laws, et cetera? I, I agree with what you're saying. I do agree with what you're saying. However, I think that one of the uh, biggest uh, advantages to the churches in recent history to uh, for, for in terms of studying the Tanakh, in, stu- in terms of studying the, the what is termed as the Old Testament, I think has been Andy Stanley. And the reason why is because when Andy, oh. when Andy Stanley said we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, the people in the Southern Baptist Convention, people in the, I mean, the Presbyterians, you name it, across the board, conserv- anyone with conservative the- theology said, this is heresy. <laughs> like, yeah, like, I lost all. Legitimate, uh, like, and, and what happened? I think that, that the people all of a sudden said, okay, we're going to start studying this stuff. I think that's what happened. Okay. I, like, I, it just, I mean, you just imagine go back to the first century and say, is this something Yeshua would have said? Right. Is this something any of the disciples would have said? And it's like, it's, if, if you think, yeah, they would have said that they would have said, uh, unhitch that then you've okay. never read your Bible. The, the, what's interesting is that you got, you got guys like, uh, like, uh, who's at an apologia studios or apologia. Um, Jeff Durbin, you got Jeff remember. Durbin, even Schumacher, who, you know, he's in our chat room and I appreciate, I, I appreciate Andrew, but the fact is, is that these guys want to say that there's something wrong with doing things that Yeshua did. Like, in other words, things that Jesus did, things that he practiced, if you do those, you, you know, uh, Durbin said that, uh, keeping a seventh day Sabbath, uh, meant you were a capital H heretic. This is ridiculous. Yeah. That, that that means that what he what he's saying is the things that Yeshua did, the things that Jesus did while on this earth. If you do those, you're a heretic. How does that? I mean, how does that compute with anyone who wants to call themselves a disciple of Christ? It doesn't make any sense at all. Anyway, um, I can tell that I'm not doing my job well here as a host because someone just asked uh, what our website is and how to get a hold of us. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can get do so by uh, leaving a phone message, and our uh, telephone number is 253-465-3205. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-465-3205. You can also shoot us an email, chegg at torahresource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at torahresource.com. That's our email address. Start sending away. Uh, you can also listen to past uh, archived shows at messiahmatters.com, which is right there for anybody watching on YouTube, messiahmatters.com. However, you can also contact us and see all sorts of uh, different free articles and whatnot on our website, torahresource.com, T-O-R-A-H, resource.com. There it is. It's on the screen for anyone watching. Uh, go ahead and take a look. All right, uh, let's move on. Should we move on? Let's move on. Uh, or did we get to everything in the question there? The, just to recap that, so so there was no religion called Judaism that was monolithic from which Christianity broke away. But that's what the rabbis want you to believe. Right, right. Just just to put a put a concise you know, bookend on that. Well, and the other thing is, so at the very end, he asked, uh, should we be doing things like in the first century that is reading from a Torah scroll, uh, having Torah portions and stuff like that? Uh, I, I don't think that there's, ne- once again, we're talking about traditions here. And I'm, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think that uh, it, almost any conservative church that you walk in today is going to have scripture reading. 
So I don't, I don't think that that necessarily needs to be from a scroll and I don't think it necessarily needs to be on a specific time frame. But at the same time, I think that uh, churches should be reading through the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. So I don't, I don't like calling them that, but uh, that's, that's what I think. Stephen writes in and he says this. He says, I was wondering if you had a minute to respond to some questions I have. Sure. I am still working through Numbers chapters 28 and 29 and still not clearly understanding some aspects of the sacrificial system. First, would you consider atonement and forgiveness the same thing? Should we stop there or should we keep going? Hang on, let's, let's, he, he goes on. For example, when I say my sins are forgiven or Yeshua's completed work has made atonement for my sins, is that the same thing? Question one. You want to go? You want to talk about I was that? Gonna, uh, what's question two? Let me grab a passage <laughs> of scripture while you're reading. Okay, so. question two is this. He says, uh, uh, what did the tabernacle slash temple sin offering accomplish? Was the Israelite's sins forgiven afterwards? Was his sins then atoned for? That's question two. And uh, he makes a clarifying statement if the answer is yes. But let's. I think that this is enough to talk about for a few seconds. Well, let me, do you want me to go and share that passage? Sure, I was thinking about? please. So in Isaiah chapter six, um, we see this incredible um, scenario where the prophet is, has this vision of the glory of God. And it, um, you can go and read Isaiah chapter six, but he, he sees the seraphim calling out to each other, kadosh, 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 right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The found verse four says the foundations of the thresholds uh, trembled at the voice of him who called out. The temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Okay, so this is the prophet Isaiah shaking in his shoes. And it says, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is atoned. So, um, this is a place where we have the atonement for sin in uh, uh, a prophetic context where we, where Isaiah is, is basically brought to the edge of his um, humanity, edge of his existence. Even though he's a righteous prophet before the Lord, he's a man of faith. He is trembling at, at his, the radical uh, depravity of the human condition over in contrast with the holiness of God. So Isaiah's not, yeah, I'm, I'm so righteous. I had this coming. I should have had this vision, you know, been waiting for this vision of your holiness because I'm so worthy, right? That's not his response. His response is, woe is me. And on, so and the act for this atonement is taken from the side of heaven. Right, it's he sees the angel that grabs this this coal with the tongs and says, "Your sin is atoned." So, to me, that is that encapsulates. One hand, there 
Isaiah, which is speaking the truth. I am, I am absolutely unworthy. I am not only am I, he, unworthy is not even a weighty enough word. He says, I am undone. And then he confesses the impurity of his own lips. Now, this is a man who has beautiful Hebrew. I mean, if you've studied Hebrew and you read Isaiah, it's, it's some of the most beautiful poetry, prophetic poetry. And there's, why would we think, well, Isaiah doesn't have any impure speech. Like, why is he saying that he's a man of unclean lips and he dwells among the people of unclean lips? It's because he identifies with the people and the problem, he understands the problem of sin and the, the, the chasm, the vast chasm between the holiness of God and the human predicament, even among Israel, even among a holy prophet of Israel. I agree with what you're saying, but I don't think it's, it's, I, I, I don't hear an answer so he's to the con- question. He's confessing. So the confession is first, the confession of what is true comes out of Isaiah's mouth and the forgiveness comes and the atonement are, are the response. Did I admit, maybe I missed the question. The question is, what's the difference between forgiveness and atonement? Correct. So say it one more time for me. They're they're essentially this, they're different ways of describing the same thing. They're they're different terms. You you can't have one without the other. The if we're talking yes, about agree. relationship with God, yep. I might qualify that and say, Caleb, let's say let's say I uh, I do I hurt your feelings or I damage something that's yours or something, and then I come and I say, Caleb, I'm I'm I, I'm working. There's, you can me and, and there's no uh, atonement in terms of the or the tabernacle involved. In that right. Right. I agree. But, but yet there's forgiveness. Um, so I, I take, I, I think atonement is involved when God's holiness is offended and has to be, um, there has to be something that marks that that the reality of that offense that goes along with the actual forgiveness. Go ahead. What are, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that no, I think you're right. I think that atonement. So all of this, all of this, uh, all of this plays into the notion of covenant. So what makes it so we aren't in covenant with God? And the answer is sin. And there needs to be payment for that sin to be able to allow us back into covenant relationship. And so something has to pay for it. The payment for that is the atonement. Forgiveness is, uh, I think, a little bit more personal, but at the same time, um, it's the fact that God does forgive sin, and he does that because the the price has been paid. So I, I completely agree with you that, uh, that both are, you know, both are interconnected. You can't have one without the other. Here's another way to look at it. So it says in the Proverbs uh, by uh, chesed and emet, so uh, loving kindness and truth, sin is atoned. So the rabbis say, oh, see, just deeds of loving kindness is in atone, uh, atones for sin. But I, you have to, Yeshua is the only one who lived a life truly of grace and truth, as we learn from John chapter one. And it was him living in grace and truth and, and demonstrating grace and truth throughout his whole life that led him to the cross. If he would have 
uh, veered away from the path of of Chesed and Emet, he wouldn't have gone to the cross because he would have just fit in with one of the groups and been protected and all that sort of stuff. So his it was his entire life, his active obedience to the Father as well as his refraining from defending himself, like in the times where he could have called, you know, the legions of agent and he didn't. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an awesome conversation to have. I mean, it's the big question is what did Yeshua do? Like, what is it that Yeshua accomplished and how did he accomplish it? And how much of that can we get our mind wrapped around? And I think forgiveness and atonement is our major uh, blocks in that larger conversation. Um, we got an interesting side note here going on. Um, Andrew in the chat room says, I never said that it was a sin to um, to to keep the, the law. It's just a sin to uh, say that other people, it's just wrong to say that other people are sinning if they don't. However, I would say that this is exactly what Christ said. So basically what, to me what that says is it's wrong to believe something that Christ believed. Because Christ comes and he says that that we're supposed to keep the law. He talks about, uh, he, if, if you love me, keep my commandments. What commandments is he talking about? He didn't say except for, the, except for this, this, and this. He's, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his tradition, as was the commandment, right? So, I mean, he sees these things as part of the law. So what those in the Torah movement are doing is they're saying, yeah, we see these as part of law as well. And what the detractors are saying is, oh, no, 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 you can't say that. That's wrong. Well, basically what you're saying is to believe something that Christ believed is wrong. So that's where I see this disconnect. As soon as you... Right. The fear, though, isn't the fear... Is the motivation like, wow, you that you're going to start believing that you're earning your salvation or something like that? I mean, I, I'm sure that that's part of the motivation. And, and uh, those who believe that, that they can do anything that's going to save them uh, have, have not read their Bibles correctly. That, that's neither here nor there. The question is, is why does the church believe that, that uh, why, do, why, why does the broader church believe that things like Sabbath and festivals and uh, kosher laws have, are no longer uh, to be kept today? Well, there's some pretty damning evidence in terms of why the church believes that. And it doesn't come from the scriptural passages that are, that are referenced. Those are, those are later, those are later, uh, it's, it's like the Talmud. It's like they, they say, oh, well, we have all these laws. How do we get people to, to, to keep the laws? Let's attach a bunch of, of uh, scripture to it. That's not what was going on in the first century, for sure. And, and I mean, I agree with, with Andrew. He says, my motivation is simply to correct error. I agree that that's what Andrew is trying to do. However, I don't think that, the, I, I don't think that uh, it's been fully thought through to to think that uh, that that God would call His law, and believing that someone should keep God's law, sin that doesn't make any sense, and it wouldn't have made sense to Christ. It wouldn't have made sense to anyone in the first century. It's it, it's just it, it's totally foreign to that. That that doesn't come around until until the temple falls and you have the Fiscus Judaicus and and all sorts of different things. So. There's there's historical reasons why these why these uh, why these things are, are happening. Okay, um, I keep getting 
I get it. Okay. I think I got uh, I think I got your email, Shlomi. Okay. Um let's move on. Oh yeah, actually we still have part Hang on, I'm trying to find my notes again. We still have part of uh, uh Steven's email. He says, um so we answered we at least tried. Um we tried to have the uh, to to separate forgiveness or not separate but attach atonement and forgiveness. Okay, so what did the ta- uh, the tabernacle slash temple sin offering accomplish? Was the Israelite's sins forgiven afterwards? Was his sins then atoned for? Uh, well, this is an excellent question. I think that uh, it, it, and there are places in the Torah where it says that it, thus it atoned for the sin. I think that uh, from a temporal level in the in the temple, the sin of the nation and the sin of the individuals within the nation is rectified within that temple space in the in the temporal world. However, the notion that that in the heavenly temple your sins are forgiven because you came and did a physical act, no, that's not the case. It, the scripture clearly states, what is it, Hosea six four or six sixteen, that uh, God uh, requires a contrite heart as opposed to sacrifice and and uh, so on and so forth. In other words, that the heart is what matters. So it's the heart looking forward to Christ in the, in, in this time period is what, um, is what actually is atoning for the sin. If a person, and this is why God says in Isaiah one and other places, stop bringing your stinking sacrifices. They're a stench to my nostrils. Well, why would he say that? If those, if that's what atoned for sin, wouldn't he want Israel to be atoned for? And the answer is no, because their heart wasn't right. So the, the, the sacrifice did nothing to actually atone for their sins. And this is really where Judaism um, gets, gets off into the weeds. So let's keep going, unless you have something specific to say to that, Rob. Nope. Nope. Yeah. I, I, just to re, you know, underscore that point about Isaiah, which Yeshua cites, you know, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that honor with the lips, that's like, oh, you know, public, making a public display of something, you know, but where the heart really is not contrite. I, I just want to, instead of typing this, I'll say this for the for everyone to hear. I agree completely with Sean Fisher in the chat room. He says, I don't see Andrew as an enemy. I don't see Andrew Schumacher as an enemy. I do not see that. I see him as a brother in the Lord. And I, I see our, our, uh, our wrestling over the matters of uh, Sabbath and kosher laws and uh, festivals as internal fighting within the family. And maybe fighting is even the wrong word. I see that as uh, internal conflict uh, and wrestling with each other over theological matters within the family. I, I see Andrew's view as a standard view of what is required. What are the covenant obligations today? I don't see him saying, I don't think that people should follow God. I don't see him saying that people shouldn't love God or try to do what God wants them to do. That's not what I'm saying. I don't want people to get that under, uh, understanding from me. I completely agree. Andrew is not a enemy at all. I think that he's a brother. And Andrew says in here, he says, uh, we should have another conversation. I would love to have another conversation. I'm trying to get, I'm trying, you know, p- people can probably see the, uh, <laughs> the progress that is being done slowly but surely around me. I'm trying to, to sure up my my office here, and once that happens, then uh, I actually hope to um, I, I hope to sit down and have another uh, public conversation with Andrew about Torah observance and about uh, ultimately about what I would consider pronomian theology um, and how that plays into the Christian walk. 
Anyway, let's keep going with uh, with Stephen's email. He says, if the answer, and this is the answer to what is the, uh, does the sin offering accomplish anything? If the answer is yes, then it wasn't the sacrifice itself that accomplished this, but uh, but the Israelites' faith in what the sacrifice pointed to, correct? Yes, that is correct. How does this differ from being unclean prior to a sacrifice and then clean after a sacrifice? Okay, this is a great question. So, you know, we what we need to do is we need to center our understanding of the temple service around what is actually happening. In the basically, we have a physical model showing us what's going on internally. So the temple, the temple space is representative of God dwelling with his people. Uncleanness, although it's not a sin to be unclean, it represents sin. And it is to death. Being unclean is almost, I wouldn't say almost, I would say being ritually unclean is always attached to death in some way, shape, or form. And so death is death separate is separation from God or separation in some way, uh, a broken relationship with God. That's what I think it represents. And so uh, what brings us back into that temple, into that relationship, into that physical space with God where we dwell with God? Well, it's the death of something innocent. It's the sacrifice. It's the sacrifice. So all of these things point to how we become right with God on a spiritual level. And so the, the notion that we, uh, you know, you, you do something, you become unclean, and then you can't enter into the temple space in, until there is some form of atonement. It points to the gospel. Want to say anything on that? No, no. Okay. Was it possible after the proper sacrifice to be clean and yet still unforgiven and your sins not atoned for? Yes. I believe that is the case. And the reason why is because somebody, you can go through the motions, you can get the, the ashes of the red heifer and become ritually clean and enter into the temple space. Does that mean that you have a right relationship with God? No. In fact, um, I think that this is why God says, stop bringing your stinking sacrifices. In other words, these people were sacrificing and they didn't, they, they were not good with God. And he goes on, finally, did God require the Passover sacrifice to be performed by the priest in the tabernacle or temple, or could this be properly performed in the home? This is a great question. And it's a question that uh, I think is answered by Yeshua. And the reason why is because Yeshua always goes up to the temple in Jerusalem to have his, his Passover lamb sacrificed. He's not out in the wilderness and says, you know what, let's, let's just sacrifice it here. We can do it here. It's good. Uh, when, the, when Israel comes into the land, God says, from now on, you, will, you can't sacrifice in anywhere you want. You can, you can kill animals for food anywhere you want, but you have to sacrifice in the place where I'm going to show you. And where does he show them? He shows them where the temple was built. So that's the only place that the, the sacrifice can be done. Rob? Well, I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. Yeah, uh, I mean, if we're, it, uh, you're right to point. I mean, we, we look to Yeshua. Yeshua is the one we look to, you know? And so that's, it's, uh, if we at, take our question and we go and say, you know, what would Jesus do kind of thing? Or what did Jesus do? Um, that, that helps us a lot to understand 
the bigger picture of scripture. Uh, he says, finally, I remember Dr. Brown once suggesting that no one really perfectly keeps Passover today because there isn't a priesthood or temple. He made this claim in the larger context of defending his position that keeping certain parts of the law is optional today, especially for the Gentile believer. I look forward to your response. Yeah, I think that uh, Dr. Brown takes a standard view and one that even um, many within the Torah movement take that uh, we can't actually keep the Passover perfectly. I would tend to, I, I tend to disagree with this on several different levels. First of all, as believers, we're the, we have the Passover lamb at our table. Uh, if Christ is actually present with us through his spirit, then he is actually at the table with us. And this is actually why, I mean, we within traditional Judaism, they, they leave a plate for Elijah because they're hoping that the Messiah will come. But I, I mean, why not uh, have the plate for, for the Messiah? In other words, we know the Messiah and he's with us. But anyway, I digress. Nonetheless, the other issue is, is that in Deuteronomy, it says, when you're in the land of your enemies and you do all that I have commanded you this day, then I will bring you back. Well, how can, how can someone do all that God has commanded them in, in the land of their enemies if there is no temple? And the answer is, is that I think with a contrite heart, we are able to, and actually the other thing is, is that uh, all of the sacrifices except for the the uh, uh, the Passover sacrifice itself, um, there's provision for if you can't make it to the temple and we didn't do anything ourselves, it was the priests who did that. I wouldn't be able to go into the temple and, and sacrifice anything today anyway, right? So Christ is actually doing the sacrifice, like he did the sacrificial act in the temple when he took his blood in and he sat down at the, at the right hand of the father once for all time. I mean, in terms of actually performing it, it's done for me. Rob, you're nailing it, dude. <laughs> ah, thanks man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and actually, uh, so, yeah, there's been more and more uh, conversation between Andrew and others in the chat room. I think it's, uh, he says uh, in future episodes, uh, they'll be addressing arguments as opposed to just surveying doctrines. I would be interested to see if, uh, if, if Coltish is actually going to address arguments. I have a feeling it's going to be the same old stuff that people always say. Rarely do people actually take the time to go and, and look at the arguments from scholarly perspectives. I mean, most of the people are going to try to take stuff from Paul. I would highly recommend that if Coltish wants to talk about arguments, they actually interact with, with legitimate arguments from like 10 persistent questions. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to actually look at, at uh, scholarly arguments for pro, for, pro Torah observance, then look where people who are actual scholars have, uh, have actually argued. I don't know. Are the guys over, I mean, do, do the guys over at cultish, do they actually, uh, and they, they could, I, I legitimately don't know. I mean, do have, are they trained in, in, uh, Greek? That wouldn't surprise me. Actually. I think that some of those guys have seminary educations, So it would be interesting to see them actually interact with, with scholarly debates over those things, as opposed to just trying to take the same old approach that so many others have attempted to take which is always it's it's always frustrating because basically you're only getting one side of the argument you're only getting one side of the one side of the of the uh discussion so anyway all right anything else rob you done 
No, I just, a lot of those I'm not familiar with because I don't follow them. So um, I don't have an opinion on you know, what they're doing. But yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, we should, uh, we should you know, encourage each other to learn the scriptures. And if you're um, in a position where you're teaching the scriptures, uh, take James's uh, statement. Is it in James 2 or James 3? Don't many be called teachers, right? I mean, he's actually, he, he like kind of throws a, a, uh, a blockage, you know, a statement that says, look, you know, think twice because there's a, there's a, a serious gravity of, of judgment um, associated with this. If you don't fear God and you're not all in with learning his word, like thoroughly, then if you're out teaching people what to believe or teaching the Bible does it, uh, says this, the Bible says this, and you haven't done your homework, that you're not a tree rooted and grown deep into the, the soil next to the streams of waters, like it says in Psalm one, then you're going to be blown over. You know, it, it's, you know, just remember the fear of God. Yep. I mean, we've seen Caleb, we've been doing this show for I don't know, almost, well, next year it'll be a decade. And we've seen how many teachers come and rise, <laughs> get a big following, and then boom, they're gone. And, uh, and then you see new ones sprouting up and you're like, wow, it's just, you know, fear of God, people remember the fear of God. All right. That's that's all I say. <laughs> if you guys have questions, comments, want to talk about things, you can do so by leaving us a phone message, 253-465-3205, 253-465-3205. You can also shoot us an email, cheg at torresource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at torresource.com. Find us online, torresource.com, torresource.com. That's where you can find all sorts of great stuff. Uh, lively discussions, lively discussions in the chat room today. Thank you everyone in the chat room. It's always great to see a good showing in there and, and see the, uh, the amazing, uh, comments that everybody makes and uh, we appreciate it. All right. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing and that is to glorify our great God and savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. Why? You know why? Because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.